Where would we be without freezers? Frozen food. I, like so many of you, have had freezers in my restaurants full of product. My freezer at home full of ice cubes for bourbon, frozen peas, pizza, and puff pastry. I can recall throwing on gloves and a hat and standing inside a gigantic walk-in freezer counting individual frozen lobster tails and shrimp. The freezer for some is a necessary evil. Yes, in the restaurant business, of course, we want to be able to only offer fresh meat and bread and seafood, but sometimes, a lot of the time, we have to get it frozen. And a lot of the time, frozen is better. It lasts forever. It doesn't go bad on its way to our restaurants and our homes, and can be the difference in our cost margins. For some reason, the words frozen product have a strange negative connotation, and that just doesn't make any sense. You see it all the time with fast food commercials. Fresh, never frozen beef. Fresh, never frozen ingredients. But in truth, freezing things is possibly the safest way to transport them, the safest way to ensure that your food arrives to your table properly, and it turns out that without freezing food, humans that lived in colder climates hundreds, even thousands of years ago would never have survived. So on this week's episode, we are telling the story of frozen food. I'm Brian Clark. This is Let's Talk About Chef. The beginning of freezing food goes back far before refrigerators, ice chests, and even electricity was a spark of an idea. Ancient Chinese people were freezing food for storage in northern areas of China as far back as 1000 BC. Back then, the winters were so cold and brutal that they would spend all summer gathering vegetables and hunting meat, which they would store in deep pits that they would dig under huts. Deep down in the permafrost, the ground is frozen all year so they would use stone and eventually metal tools to chip away at the frozen earth bit by bit, making areas large enough to keep things cold. These pits, and the knowledge of how to build them so long ago, was passed from village to village, from person to person, and eventually the concept of storing food in the frozen ground made its way across the known world. In North America, the Inuit, the northern indigenous tribes of Canada, would store their food in much the same way, except here in the north of Canada, the summers are so short that snow and ice can be found virtually all year round. The concept of killing a freshly killed seal or reindeer was common amongst the Inuit. They were some of the first peoples to travel miles out to sea on the frozen ice and burrow feet down through it to the freezing water below. There, they would wait for seals to use the holes they made in the ice to pop out of and breathe, and it was then that the waiting Inuit would pounce on their prey. The Inuit were also some of the first ice fishermen, dropping baited lines through the holes to catch fish, which would freeze in the cold air to be eaten later. 
The concept of freezing food was adapted hundreds of years later when ice chests first started appearing in North America before the advent of electricity. All across the colder climates of North America and into Canada, companies would spring up when the lakes froze in winter, and huge sleds pulled by teams of horses would be brought to the deepest part of the ice in the middle of a lake, and there teams of men would use saws to cut massive rectangular chunks of ice out of the frozen fresh water, where they would be pulled by the horses back to dry land. Once back on the ground, these huge chunks of ice would be cut down and packed together in crates lined with sawdust which would hold the ice temperature below freezing. With this method, ice delivery was a common way of life for rich landowners and businessmen in the South. There, a wagon would pull up in front of a house and a man would sell you a block of ice for your home. The ice was crystal clear and still as frozen as it had been weeks earlier when it had been harvested from a lake. Most of the time, this ice would be chopped up as you needed it to cool down iced teas and other beverages an extremely expensive way to cool a drink down if you could afford it to beat the summer heat. But it wasn't long before produce and meat would be packed in amongst the ice in the chest to keep it from spoiling. In a way, and not too long ago, people were freezing their food before refrigerating it was ever even a thought. In 1912 in Labrador, Canada, a Brooklyn native named Clarence Birdseye was working on breeding foxes for the fur trade. Being from New York City and finding himself in the harsh winters of eastern Canada for the first time, he took notice of how those around him would freeze their food for winter by digging it into the ground. He later learned that this technique was from the Inuit up north, and it was a way to take freshly caught fish and vegetables and freeze it for months quickly. And then when you wanted to eat it in the heart of winter, it would taste as fresh as the day you caught it. The idea struck Clarence as genius. And if you could do this with fish and simple vegetables, then you could do it with everything. By 1927, Clarence applied for a patent for a freezing machine. The machine involved placing food between two metallic plates that were held at negative 13 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 25 degrees Celsius and put through a tunnel to flash freeze virtually anything. At first, bird's eye foods were freezing haddock fillets, 17 other cuts of meat and fish, as well as spinach, loganberries, and raspberries. But the thing that blew everyone away was the peas. Peas that were picked in June at the height of their season and frozen so quickly that they tasted fresh months, even years later. Frozen food started to slowly gain popularity, but this, you have to remember, was a time in history when people didn't have huge grocery stores with aisles upon aisles of freezers full of product. People were still going to butcher shops for their meat, produce stands and farmers markets for their produce, and bakeries for their bread. 
Milk was delivered to your front door, so the concept of going to one store and buying everything all at once was virtually non-existent. But by the time America joined World War II, all canning lines were being used to package food to send overseas for the troops, and Americans back home were told to do their part in the war effort and start to eat, of all things, frozen food. So that the fresh stuff could be sent into the war effort. Frozen food even cost less ration points than canned food, so it was a no-brainer for people to start to make the switch, and in North America, people started to get used to frozen foods. Between 1945 and 1946, only one year, 800 million pounds of frozen food was bought in America alone. New for baby, a new world of freshness. Birdseye frozen instant baby foods. Birdseye's unique dry freezing process gives you strained baby foods with fresh food benefits never before possible. Fresh flavor and color, important natural vitamins, and valuable protein quality now are combined in tiny frozen food crystals. So easy. Just add water, stir, no thawing, no further cooking. Ready in 20 seconds. Try it. You'll discover wonderful new taste appeal for baby. Bird's Eye Baby Foods keep fresh for weeks in your refrigerator, for months in your freezer. So economical, no more leftovers to spoil. So give baby a fresh serving every meal with wonderful new fresh food taste appeal. Get Bird's Eye Frozen Instant Baby Foods, a complete line in your grocer's freezer. Hey everyone, I just wanted to take a quick second and tell you that if you want to support the podcast, you can do just that by going to buymeacoffee.com slash LTAC. If Let's Talk About Chef has made a difference in your life or you just want to help support the show, we would be grateful for any support. Buy Me A Coffee is an amazing way to support independent creators, so go to buymeacoffee.com slash LTAC to support your favorite food podcast. And now, back to the show. In 1944, W.L. Maxson Company created the first ever frozen dinner called Stratoplates. These meals were sold to the Navy and airlines, and they consisted of three ingredients, meat, vegetables, and potatoes, all on a paperboard tray. And knowing that the airlines had weight limits, the founder of the company, William Maxson, invented a convection oven called the Maxson Whirlwind Oven that weighed 35 pounds and it could cook six frozen meals at the same time in half the time of a regular oven. Although the company planned on making frozen meals for regular people and not just the military and airlines, Stratoplates never made it to the retail market. But three years later, Jack Fisher released the Frigid Dinner, the first aluminum tray for frozen meals. And around that same time as this, Albert and Meyer Bernstein created the Frozen Dinners Incorporated and launched into the world the Swanson Family Dinner. As television was quickly taking over the country, the idea of sitting down with your family and watching TV shows while eating Swansons is pretty much the image you get when you think about the 50s. Housewives could pull some Swanson's TV dinners out of the new household freezers they had in their kitchens and heat them up in the oven in no time. 
Jerry Thomas was a 30-year-old Swanson executive, and he was on a plane when he was given a heated tray of turkey dinner to eat on a flight. It was a convenient timing because in 1952, there was a massive turkey surplus, and the company needed to figure out how to get rid of 520,000 pounds of turkey. Enter the Swanson's Turkey Dinner. Swanson sold the first few thousand meals near their headquarters in Omaha in small grocery stores. But when the dinners went national in 1954, they sold 10 million of them in their first year alone. Jerry Thomas is so revered in the food industry that in 1999 he was inducted into the Frozen Food Hall of Fame, there is a signed Swanson TV tray in the Smithsonian Museum, and he even has his fingerprints in front of the famous grounds Chinese theater in Hollywood next to all the movie stars. Picture of a turkey dinner about to be served. From this calm, clean kitchen? Yes, out of the refrigerator, 20 minutes ago, came Swanson frozen main courses. Inside, waiting, there's a pitcher of V8 juice, a crisp tossed salad. Now here in the oven, the individual main courses are almost done. Yes, time's up. Go call Daddy. Tell him time to eat. Now put them on the plate and set them on the table. Generous servings of tender turkey with gravy, savory dressing, fluffy mashed potatoes. Wholesome, delicious, like home cooking. Picture of a dinner being enjoyed. Picture of a wife who pleased her family, eased herself. Picture of the way to do it. You can even give everyone his favorite with no extra work. They're the oven-quick foods that taste home-cooked. Swanson Frozen Main Courses. Wow. So you guys think you're lucky you can get Swanson TV turkey dinners, but I say Swanson TV turkey dinners are a bigger break for husbands. Now, you take me. I can be early, I can be late, I can bring pals to dinner anytime I please, and get this, my wife never panics. She just takes Swanson TV turkey dinners from the freezing compartment of our refrigerator when I'm a little off schedule. Oh, and right you are, Jack. And that is because Mary Lou knows that she can have a, a swell dinner ready in just 25 minutes. Right. And talk about easy. Well, she just pops Swanson TV turkey dinners in a hot oven. You know, they're oven ready in individual heat and serve trays. With Swanson TV turkey dinners, you just heat and serve, and you serve big and hearty slices of moist, tender Swanson turkey with grand giblet gravy and special cornbread dressing and fluffy whipped sweet potatoes with golden Swanson butter mm. and garden fresh peas with more butter. Mother Murphy, lucky me. My wife uses Swanson TV turkey dinners. And make your husband lucky, too. Get Swanson TV turkey dinners, Swanson TV fried chicken dinners, Swanson TV beef dinners from your grocer's big freezer. Seeing as this is a Let's Talk About Chef episode, you know that I'm going to talk about frozen pizza. It wasn't until the 1950s that picking up a frozen pizza at a grocery store became an option for shoppers. In early 1950s America, pizza had only recently become widely popular. But it took off with the bulk of the population after World War II, and frozen dinners in general didn't really enter the picture at all until more Americans started buying home freezers in the 1940s and 50s. But as early as 1950, 
pizza restaurant owners in the U.S. had started offering refrigerated pizzas for customers to cook in their own homes. In June 1950, the New York Times wrote that the trend of refrigerated, ready-to-cook pizzas had recently become popular in Boston, leading to a New York City baker named Leo Guefer selling similar pizzas in his own city for 49 cents each. Around that same time, some restaurant owners started selling frozen versions of their pizzas that they could store longer than the refrigerated ones and sell to customers looking to cook them at home. In 1950, a man named Joseph Buki in Philadelphia filed the first official patent for frozen pizza, titled Method for Making Frozen Pizza. USA Today notes that ads offering 33-cent frozen pizzas appeared in the Massachusetts newspapers in the early 1950s, while in Akron, Ohio, a man named Jack DeLuca was reportedly selling around $20,000 per month of his branded frozen pizzas. In 1951, a Chicago businessman named Emile DeSalvi launched his Pizza Fro brand of frozen pizzas, and by 1954 had reportedly sold over 5 million of them. And then we get to Totino's. America's frozen pizza business was mostly made up of regional players, until the 1960s, when a few businesses started to achieve national attention. Married couple Rose and Jim Totino began mass-producing frozen pizzas from a plant in St. Louis Park, Minnesota in 1962. A decade earlier, the couple took out a loan to open an Italian restaurant in Minnesota. Rose had to bake pizza for her bank's loan officer to get the loan because he'd never heard of pizza before and didn't know what it was. By the 1970s, Totino's became the country's top-selling frozen pizza, and annual sales jumped from 10 million in 1970 to 50 million by 1974. And the couple sold their business to the Pillsbury Company in 1975 for $22 million. Today, Totino's is known as the leading purveyor of frozen pizza rolls, that's bite-sized pizza dough pockets filled with cheese and sauce, and they have over $600 million in annual sales for the brand. But Pillsbury wasn't alone in the pizza game. In 1966, the Symic brothers of Medford, Wisconsin, pivoted from selling pizzas in their bar, the Tombstone Tap, to a business selling frozen pizzas to other nearby taverns. They called their product Tombstone Pizza, and by 1984, the company was one of the country's largest frozen pizza distributors with over $100 million in annual sales, and two years later, Kraft Foods bought Tombstone for an undisclosed amount. But meanwhile, while all this was happening, frozen food delivery company Schwann's finally entered the frozen pizza business in 1970 with the purchase of Selena, a Kansas-based pizza manufacturer. Schwann's nationwide distribution network helped boost Tony's Pizza into a national frozen pizza brand that sold $80 million worth of pizzas annually by the mid-1970s. And then in 1976, Schwann's expanded its pizza business by launching Red Baron, which is now one of the country's leading frozen pizza brands with over $570 million in annual sales as of 2017. As more and more large corporations got into the frozen pizza business, by the early 1980s, the market was worth well over a billion dollars in annual revenue. And even federal regulators felt the need to weigh in by attempting to set standards for how much cheese a frozen meat pizza was required to have. 
1983, the U.S. Department of Agriculture issued a proposal that would have required all frozen pizzas with meat toppings to have cheese make up at least 12% of ingredients, with no more than 50% of that amount being imitation cheese. In 1995, Kraft launched its DiGiorno brand of frozen pizzas, which feature a doughy crust that rises as it bakes, as opposed to the flat, crunchy crusts that had made up all of frozen pizza up to that point. Kraft's development included various food additives, along with oils, yeasts, and baking sodas, to strengthen the pizza's dough and help it stay hydrated rather than drying out. And the company also introduced vacuum-sealed packaging to keep out oxygen that eroded the dough. Within three years, DiGiorno was the top-selling frozen pizza brand in the U.S., and rivals like Schwann's tried to launch their own competing products. In 1996, Schwann's unveiled its own rising crust pizza brand called Freschetta, which resulted in a massive lawsuit from Kraft for copying their rising crust dough idea. Either way, DiGiorno has remained the country's top-selling frozen pizza brand for more than two decades, with more than one billion in annual sales. In Canada, DiGiorno is Delicio. It's not delivery, it's Delicio. Now, frozen pizza has been around for almost seven decades, and the frozen pizza industry continues its rise. In 2010, Kraft Foods sold its US and Canada frozen pizza business, which included DiGiorno and Tombstone, to Nestle for $3.7 billion in cash. And today, the U.S. frozen pizza market is worth roughly $5 billion, and the global market is almost triple that. Now, by 2023, one estimate projects that the global market for frozen pizza will be worth $17 billion. That's a lot of frozen food. Now, Celeste brings you Sicilian-style thick-crust pizzas. Abundanza! Three Celeste Sicilian-style pizzas, each with a special thick crust that's crispy outside, tender inside. Like fresh Italian bread. In cheese, sausage, and deluxe, each topped with everything you like in abundance. Abundanza! Three Celeste Sicilian-style pizzas with a special thick crust. Despite your feelings about frozen food, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. In fact, over 3,000 new frozen products are introduced into the global market every single month. Your freezer is not something that you should be afraid of. Your freezer is something that is wonderful. It is a magical place where you can put things, forget about them, and eat them later. As with all things on this show, it's fascinating to think that the idea that right now there is a frozen pizza in my freezer that I am probably going to eat tonight and enjoy all came from something in a tradition of freezing food that happened thousands of years ago in the north of my country, Canada, and all the way across the world in northern China. It's traditions and history like this that make this show so much fun to talk about, and I hope you enjoyed it. That's it for this week's episode of the show. If you want to write in, you can send everything to let's talk about chef at gmail.com or you can follow me on Instagram at Chef Brian Clark. I want to thank everyone that has supported the show by going to buy me a coffee slash LTAC. And if you feel like supporting us, that is the best place to do it. This episode was written by me and is available wherever you listen to podcasts. 
And if you like the show, tell somebody about it, please. We are easy to find. On a personal note, I will be back in England and Scotland in April. So if you are near London or Kent or Glasgow or Edinburgh, hit me up, send me an email, send me a DM. Let's meet up. Let's have a drink. Let's have fun. And if anything, I'll come and eat in your restaurants. I'm looking forward to getting away and going back to that country that I love so much. So until next week, I'm Brian Clark. Have a great service and have a great week. Did I